0: great to be with you this morning. Amy and I have been uh, the last week in Alaska. And so uh, I want to thank you for sending us there uh, on behalf of Moberly to serve with True North Church. Uh, Last uh, Sunday uh, and actually Saturday night, we did a a worship service for True North Saturday night and then again Sunday morning. There it is. There's True North. Uh, True North was started by Moberly uh, 13 years ago this month. And so it was a delight to be able to go and just see all that the Lord has done uh, over those years. They have uh, merged in the last year with Muldoon Road Baptist Church, which has provided a wonderful facility for continued ministry. And they are just doing a great job in in the city of Anchorage. Actually, Philip Coleman, who's the pastor, doing a great job. He has a vision for the entire city of Anchorage and for the state of Alaska. They're already beginning to pray about uh, starting a church from True North. And so I said, hey, we want to be a part of that because we are interested in, in part of a having a grandbaby. Amen. We, we gave birth to True North, but we'd love to uh, be part of giving birth to a grandbaby there and just see that great gospel work continue. And then Tuesday, I had the opportunity to speak to the Alaska Baptist Pastors Conference and just encourage pastors who are serving in very rural, isolated areas. Many of them are serving churches that have 15 or 20 people. There was one pastor we talked to. Their, their church is so uh, Uh, Rural and isolated that they don't even gather every week and they live too far from one another So they have a weekly phone call and they do uh, church by phone And bible study and prayer and so forth singing together on the phone and then once a month They'll get together for a worship gathering and so we need to pray for the state of alaska but I wanna thank you for sending us and just let you know it was a great, uh, great time of ministry and you should be proud and excited of, of the work of True North Church, which you have had a hand in and uh, it is continuing faithful ministry 13 years later uh, in the state of Alaska. It's good to be back and good to be uh, together as we look at Genesis chapter one. And so if you have a Bible with you, I want you to turn to Genesis chapter one. Amy and I used to live in uh, West Texas and uh, one of the, Great things about where we lived is that Route 66 comes right through Amarillo, Texas. That's one of the, uh, uh, the most famous highways in America. It starts in Chicago, Illinois, and goes all the way out through uh, Kansas and Oklahoma and Texas and New Mexico, and all the way out to Santa Monica, California. And so a lot of people love to drive uh, that highway, You know, especially people in their retired years, they'll go rent a Corvette and buy a Coca-Cola and put the <laughs> convertible down and hit the open road on Route 66. <clears throat> And it's great, especially when you're starting Chicago and, you know, the first few miles you're excited, but then you hit West Texas (laughs) and you experience trials and tribulation because there's hundreds of miles, just stretches of nothing uh, but tumbleweeds and wide open skies. And so a lot of times people will drive there and they'll get tired uh, of driving after hundreds of miles and, and they'll just pull off in random little towns in West Texas and stay at random little motels on their way out to California. Now, I want you to imagine for a moment that that is you. I want you to imagine for a moment that you're on Route 66. You've been driving for hundreds of miles, and you're worn out after a long day of driving. And so you decide to stop for the night. Now, you didn't plan ahead. You have not decided where you're going to stop. You just pull off at a random town, and you haven't made a reservation at a hotel. You just pick a random place to stay, no forethought whatsoever. And you walk into this hotel to book a room. You get the room. You start making your way into the room, you open the door, and as you open the door at this random room in a random hotel in a random town in West Texas, you hear music in the room, and and it's your favorite band. So you kind of pay attention, and you notice that it's your favorite band playing your favorite song. That's weird. You You walk into the room, and you notice that the television is turned on. And it's the Astros game. And you think, this is the place for me. This is very weird, but it seems like I'm at home here. You you round the corner and you notice in the little dining area that someone has come into the room before you got there. Remember, this is a random room in a random hotel in a random town. You didn't plan it. And someone has come and they've set a table with food on it. And you notice it's your favorite meal, mac and cheese. You walk up to the table, and on the table's a little note card that says, Welcome to your home away from home, Andrew. Now, I don't know about you, but if that was me, in that scenario, my blood would turn cold. I want you to think about what would be going through your mind if you walked into a room that felt random, but it was so finely tuned to you, so customized. I mean, what would be going through your mind? I think the first thing that would be going through my my mind is, am I being punked? You know, where's the candid camera here? Who set this thing up? You could imagine, I suppose, that this was just random chance that you happened to choose this place, and it just so happened to have your favorite music and your favorite song and have your favorite sports team on the television and have your favorite meal on the table, and someone just randomly put your exact name on the table. You could say, it's just an accident. But that's so unlikely that it's really impossible, isn't it? I mean, the mathematical probability for that kind of thing to be so customized specifically to you, you'd have to be absolutely crazy to believe that. Instead, you would be wondering, okay, who's responsible for this? Somebody who knows me got here before me and set everything up just for me. And you'd be wondering who that is. Who's responsible for all of this? Well, that's a question that we face, isn't it? In this world which we call home, we are being told in our day and time to believe that this world that we inhabit, that is so customized to our existence, that is so fine-tuned to us being here, we are being asked to believe that everything that we experience on this earth is due to total random chance, That is all an accident. I took our kids a couple of weeks ago. Amy was out of town for a couple of nights, and so I took our kids to uh, go look at some alligators over in Louisiana, because I'm an awesome dad. Uh, and that's what you do when mom's not around. You take your, your kids to the gator pen. Uh, and there was a lady who began to introduce alligators to us, and one of the first things she said was, alligators evolved a- about uh, 250 million years ago. And our kids were just like, that's not true. That's what we're being told, that this world that's so fine-tuned to our being here is a result of a big bang millions of years ago, that it was a cosmic accident, that we're all here by some random act of chance. Now, now what's the problem with a view like that? Well, there are many. Let me just give you one. Listen, ideas have consequences, And that idea that we're all here by random chance that it's all a cosmic accident, that has consequences. And one of the consequences of that idea is this. If it's true that we're here by random chance because of a cosmic accident, then your life and my life has no purpose. And the reality is there are a lot of people today who believe exactly that. They believe that they're here on accident. And that view has had devastating effects for the people who believe it. Suicide rates are up. Depression is up, many people just feel sad and hopeless, they get lost in a screen, they have no relationships, they're lonely, they get to the end of their life and they say, what does it matter? Because they've been fed a lie that everything is here on accident and that their life has no purpose. In the ancient world, the Israelites were being told a different story. As they came out of Egypt and entered the Promised Land, the Israelites suddenly faced competing truth claims from their pagan neighbors, who said that the world was here as a result of the work of other gods. That that these these pagan neighbors claimed that the sun god or the god of the sea or a variety of other gods really were responsible for the existence of the world and they were the ones truly in control. Folks, that's why we have Genesis chapter one. The reason we have Genesis 1 in our Bibles, it was originally written actually not to counteract evolution, although I think it actually does that. Genesis 1 was originally given to counteract idolatry. The big idea of Genesis 1 is simply this, that God is responsible for the creation of the world. That it's not here because of random chance, and it's not here because of the work of other gods, but it's the work of Israel's God that has brought all things into being. That the, the, the God who called Israel into being is the God who called all things into, be, into being. That's what Genesis 1 is about. And you see that in verse 1, which is actually the heading for the whole chapter. It says in Genesis 1, 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That means that Israel's God is the one who is responsible for all things and is therefore truly in control of the world. This world is not here by accident. Amen? It's not here due to the work of some other God. No, Israel's God is responsible. That's, by the way, part of what it means for God to be God. The New City Catechism asks this question What is God? And the answer is a great answer. God is the creator and the sustainer of everyone and everything. If you just want a one-sentence definition of God, that's a pretty good candidate right there. God is the creator and the sustainer of everyone and everything. That means that nothing and no one around you is accidental. Everything you see and, and everyone you encounter is the purposeful creation of a loving God, that means that everything matters. It means that your work, your home, your recreation, your romantic life, your family, it has nothing to do with some some random chance or some accident, it actually matters how you live. It means that everyone matters. There are no accidental persons, amen? Now you might have looked in the mirror at times in your life and say, I'm an accident, I shouldn't be here. Maybe you've looked in the mirror and you said, Mom and Dad didn't plan me. I was a mistake. Many people have thought those things about themselves, but Genesis 1 tells us there are no accidental persons, that everyone who is here is here is a special creation of a loving God, which means that every single person matters. Every human life is valuable from the moment of conception to natural death and every stage in between. It's a good place for an amen. Thank you, brother everyone matters. It's why C.S. Lewis says that you've never met a mere mortal. You realize when you're looking at your neighbor to your left or your right or in front of you or behind you, that you're looking at somebody who's a special creation of a loving God who bears the image of God. There are no accidental things. There are no accidental persons. God did this. He is responsible, which means that not only does everything matter and everyone matters, it means God matters. If, If God is responsible for you and for me and for everything else, and there's nothing more important than God. That's why Genesis 1 starts the way it does. In the beginning, God, it starts with Him. Now, if verse 1 is about the God of creation, verses 2 and following is about the creation of God. So you can think about verse 1 as as describing who creates. Verses 2 and following describes how God creates. And so that's what I want us to look together at this morning. We're going to look at the entirety of chapter 1. Now, don't get nervous, because we're not going to look in detail at every single verse. But I want to just kind of give you a framework that will help you understand what's going on in Genesis chapter 1. Okay, here's the first thing that you need to realize. Verse 2 describes kind of an initial stage of creation. And then verses 3 and following describes the development of creation through six days where God creates. And then chapter two, verses one through three is God's response to his creative work. Okay, so we're, we're gonna look at that together. I want you to see, first of all, in verse two, at the creation of God, and I want you to see it in its initial stage. Look at Genesis one verse two. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery Depths, Or some of you have a translation that says darkness covered the surface of the deep. Okay, I want you to pay attention to the language there. In its initial stage, right, God creates the heaven, the earth. And in its initial stage, this is how the earth is described. It's described as formless, as empty, and as dark, and as watery. Okay, each of those words is is important. Formless, that means it's unordered. Uh, There's a sense of chaos here in verse 2. Empty, that, that means there, that some of you have a translation that says it was void, uh, or, or some of you even have a translation that says that it was a wasteland. And then dark and watery, okay? There's a, a darkness that's covering the, the, the earth. And at this point, there's no land, there's, there's no creatures, it's just this watery mass. So f- chaotic. Dark, watery, empty wasteland. Now, if you're an Israelite, that's a pretty scary depiction of earth prior to the days of creation. Uh, One of the reasons that it's scary is because the ancient Israelites associated the, the sea with evil. Uh, the watery depths was a place that w- that was uh, associated with with darkness and with evil, and so, for instance, in the book of daniel, uh, this is the sea is where monsters come from uh, it 's why, in the book of Jonah, you remember Jonah, that rebellious prophet uh, who's called to go to Nineveh instead he goes down to Tarsus and gets on a boat, and there 's a big storm, and all these sailors are very terrified because of the storm. It's because the storm is associated with with evil darkness. And so what do they do? They begin to toss overboard all of their luggage, and eventually they toss the prophet overboard as well. A lot of people are like, what's going on there? Well, the reason that that happened uh, is because they believed in uh, a sea god by the name of Yam, Y-A-M. And many scholars believe that what they were doing is that they were actually offering sacrifices to the sea god tossing luggage overboard, eventually tossing a human sacrifice into the sea, expecting that that would satisfy the sea God and his wrath would stop. Okay, so this is the way the Israelite mind worked as it related to the watery depths. It was terrifying. It's why the disciples, when they would go in the Sea of Galilee, you remember there would be a storm and they would be terrified for their life and they couldn't understand how Jesus was asleep under the, under the, uh, the, the bottom of the boat. They're terrified because Uh, The sea is associated with evil. It's associated with darkness. By the way, that's why it's so important that Jesus walks on the water. Jesus is literally trampling underfoot that place that was associated with darkness and evil. Jesus puts it under his feet. It's also important, by the way, when you read about the new creation in Revelation chapter 21, which is describing the new Jerusalem, the new heavens and the new earth, there's this little odd phrase in Revelation 21 and verse 1 where John says, I looked and the sea was no more. Have you ever wondered why that phrase is? Is it like that God doesn't like the water? No, I don't think it has anything to do with that. What John is depicting is that in the new creation, this place that's been associated with evil and darkness, the watery depths is is no more in the new creation. So so there's a sense in which if you're an Israelite and you're reading Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2 for the first time, verse 2 represents a problem. But before God shapes the earth into something that's usable and livable, it is a chaotic, dark wasteland not unlike the wilderness that the Israelites have just spent 40 years wandering in. There's a a chaos, there's a darkness, there's an emptiness. The truth is, as you hear those words, some of you might describe your life that way at this current moment. You might say, pastor, that really kind of describes what my existence is like. It's chaotic, it's out of control, it's unordered, it's dark, it's empty, So is there any hope in the midst of darkness, in the midst of emptiness, in the midst of chaos? Is there any hope? Is there a solution to this perceived problem? Well, the answer is clearly yes. That's why you have the rest of Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1 and verses 2 and following describes how God turns back the formlessness and the emptiness and the chaos and the darkness. And I want you to notice the presence of two things in the text that would have given the Israelites comfort and confidence in the face of the startling nature of verse 2. In the face of that formlessness and emptiness and darkness, that void wasteland, there were two things in Genesis chapter 1 that would have given them, given them comfort and confidence. I want you to notice the presence of God's Spirit and the presence of God's Word. Okay, can we say those two things together? The presence of God's Spirit and the presence of God's word. God's spirit and God's word makes a difference in the face of darkness, emptiness, and chaos. Notice, first of all, that even though the, uh, the earth appears to be chaotic and dark and out of control, notice in verse two how God's spirit, look what it says, is hovering over the surface of the waters. Now, I want you to notice a couple of things about this. First of all, notice the word Hovering. The Spirit of God hovering over the surface of the dark waters. That word literally means to flutter or to fly. The Spirit of God is pictured as fluttering above, flying above, like a bird, flying above this dark, chaotic mass. That same word is used in Deuteronomy chapter 32. And I actually wanna read you a passage from Deuteronomy because I want you to see how that word was used elsewhere. It kind of helps us understand the sense in which it's to be understood here. Genesis chapter 32 and verses 10 through 12 is describing God's care for his people while they were in the wilderness. And listen to what it says. Deuteronomy 32, beginning verse 10, it says, God found Israel in a desolate land, in a barren, howling, Wilderness. Now, does that kind of sound like Genesis 1 and verse 2? A dark, chaotic, wasteland, a wilderness, desolate. God comes to Israel in the 40 years of the wandering in the wilderness. It was, it was like that there as well. But look at this. Verse 10. But he surrounded him and cared for him and protected him as the pupil of his eye. He watches over his nest like an eagle. And here's the word flutters, hovers, flies over his young. He spreads his wing and catches him and carries him on his feathers. The Lord alone led him with no help from a foreign God. I think you actually need to read Deuteronomy 32 right next door to Genesis chapter one because the same idea is happening. You have this dark, empty chaos and things seem out of control, but they're not. Have you ever experienced a situation in your life where things feel out of control? I remember when uh, our third daughter was a baby. I'm talking about little Mackenzie right here. She was one month old. She got RSV, which is, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Help me out, doc. Respiratory, thank you, that's the word. And uh, I was out of town. She gets RSV. I was up in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And she was down in Hobbs, New Mexico, and the RSV development got worse and worse. And at one month old, she had to be brought back to the hospital. She was this tiny little thing. And I rushed home from Santa Fe and just sweating bullets the whole time. You know, just worried for my daughter and walked into that hospital room and there's this tiny little Mackenzie, and she's got breathing tubes up her nose. That's an awful thing to see as a, a young dad. You know, you're worried about your tiny little month old baby Others of you have walked through other things where you're like, it just feels out of control. It feels chaotic. It, it feels dark. It feels empty. But Deuteronomy 32 and Genesis chapter one and verse two shows us that the, the fluttering, the hovering of God's spirit over his people signifies his watchful care of his people. Like an eagle watching over his young eaglets, that, that, that it may feel out of control, but there is, a, there is a parent bird hovering over, fluttering over, carrying over what seems to be chaotic. By the way, this is interesting imagery as well when you think about the baptism of Jesus, because there Jesus in the waters of the Jordan, the Spirit of God descends like a what? Like a dove, fluttering down, hovering over the the water, as Jesus is baptized here in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2, the Spirit flutters, hovers over the watery darkness, signifying that those things may seem to be out of control. This dark mass is under the providential care of God's Spirit. And that's reinforced by the idea that He's hovering over the watery chaos. He flutters above it, ruling over it. I don't know about you, but that comforts my heart. It comforts my heart because even though circumstances in my life may seem to be out of control, it is under the providential care of the Spirit of God. And you might walk through circumstances in your life where you feel like you are utterly alone and there is a chaotic, dark emptiness, but you are not alone The Spirit of God is fluttering and hovering and flying and carrying over you. The Spirit of God makes a difference. So does the Word of God. You have the presence of the Spirit of God in Genesis 1, but you also have the presence of God's Word. I want you to notice verse 3. The Spirit hovering over the watery depths. Then, let's say this together. Then, verse 3, God said... I want you to circle that phrase because it's the most repeated phrase in Genesis chapter one. It's repeated 10 times. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light 10 times. You have the repetition of God said, you also have a repetition of the phrase God called, right? He called the light day. He called the darkness night. You have a repetition of the phrase, God named. So God has the power to speak things into existence, the power to call things into being, the power to name that which he has created, which is reflective of his authority over the things he's made. If you have the power to name something, to call something, you have authority over the thing that you've named. We name our dogs. We have the authority to call our dogs to us, right? And half the time they listen. Or less than half the time they listen. In the ancient world, the the, the the ability to name was reflective of authority over the thing named. Here in Genesis chapter 1, you see God speak, God call, God name. That is a key theme in Genesis chapter 1. It seems like there is a dark, empty wasteland, but enter God's voice. And God's voice makes the difference in darkness. Do you believe that today? Not just the darkness of Genesis 1. God's voice makes a difference in your darkness and in my darkness. God's voice is powerful. God, here in Genesis 1, speaks into this chaos, and His Word has generative, creative power, the power to create something out of nothing. It has the possibility to bring into possibility things that don't exist without Him, the power to bring into being that which was not. Do you believe in the power of God's Word? Do you believe that the the difference God's Word can make? Do you realize that in the midst of your problems that you serve a God who can simply speak the Word and cause something to be? It's why in Matthew chapter 8, the Roman centurion who came to Jesus asking for his servant to be healed just told Jesus, just speak the Word and my servant will be healed. You don't even have to come look at him. You don't even have to come touch him. It's enough, Jesus. Your word, Jesus, is powerful enough that if you'll just say the word, it'll make the difference. It's why Jesus, it makes a difference when he's in the storm with the disciples on the Sea of Galilee, and they're terrified for their life, and he's taking a nap in the boat. And they wake him up and say, what are you doing, Jesus? And he's not at all flustered. Instead, he just gets up and he speaks a word. Be still. And those stormy waves are immediately calmed. Folks, that's, that makes a difference. If God's word is present, there's hope. Amen? The psalmist believed this. Can I read you? Psalm 29. Listen to how the, the psalmist thought of the word of God. Notice the repetition of the voice of the Lord. Ascribe to the Lord you heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength, ascribe to the Lord the glory do his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. The voice of the Lord is above the waters. Think Genesis 1. The God of glory thunders. The Lord above the vast water. The voice of the Lord in power. The voice of the Lord in splendor. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord shatters the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the woodlands bare. In his temple, all cry glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the waters. The Lord sits enthroned king forever. The Lord gives his people strength and blesses his people with peace. The voice of the Lord matters. This would have been significant for the Israelites reading Genesis for the very first time because they've been brought out of Egypt and they were guided by what? God's Spirit and God's Word. God's Spirit speaking from a burning bush. God's Spirit leading in a pillar of cloud and fire. God's voice coming to them from a mountain on Sinai, given to Moses a law, a Torah, an instruction, a word. The Israelites are in the promised land now, and they're surrounded by pagan neighbors. They need to be reminded that God has not left them absent. God has not left them alone. As long as they have the presence of the Spirit of God, and the presence of the Word of God, no matter how dark, empty, or chaotic their experience, they had hope. By the way, do I need to remind you that you are a people indwelt by the Spirit of God, which means no matter how chaotic or unordered or empty or dark your experience might be, you might be facing... Something overwhelming. If you have the presence of the Holy Spirit of God, you have hope. You you might have come up against a wall and you need a breakthrough. You, You have the Word of God, which can call into being things that are not, that has creative power, that can make a difference in your circumstance. If you have the Spirit of God and you have the Word of God, you have hope. Amen? Well, what happens as the Spirit of God hovers and the Word of God speaks? Well, verse 2 actually sets up the rest of the chapter, and I want to relieve you. We're not going to look at all of these verses, but I do want you to read all of them. But I want to give you a way of seeing the rest of chapter 1, and it actually flows from verse 2. Okay, because come back to verse two. Notice the words formless and empty. You see that in verse two? The earth was formless and empty. Okay, that's a Hebrew wordplay in the Hebrew language. I'm gonna teach it to you. Ready? Listen to me because I'm gonna have you repeat it back to me. Formless and empty in Hebrew is tohu vabohu, not tofu. Okay, that is not a biblical word. Tohu vabohu. That's formless and empty. Do you think you can say it? Ready? Tohu, vabohu, formless and empty, okay? Everything else in chapter 1 is God turning back formlessness and turning back emptiness. He does it through six days of creative work. Each of those six days is structured very carefully, Okay, and I just want you to, to give a, you a framework for reading these later. The six days are divided into two halves, days one through three, and days four through six. In days one through three, what you see God doing is God forming, which turns back formlessness, tohu. Days four, five, and six is God filling what he has formed, turning back bohu, or emptiness. So what Genesis 1 is all about. Listen, people sometimes get stuck in the weeds. Was this a 24-hour day? Was it a day-age thing? What's What's happening? And they kind of miss the point. The point of Genesis 1 is to show how God forms what is formless and fills what is empty. So I want to show you a chart that's going to help you categorize the six days. Okay, let's throw that chart up here on the screen. Poof. The days of forming, or days one, two, and three, Let's just look at day one. God forms light and dark. Okay, let me, let me read you these verses. Let's keep that on the screen there. It says, Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. There was an evening, and there was a morning, one day. Now, we're not told about any details, just light and dark. Okay, that's the structure. That's the form. But then day four, God begins to fill in what he has formed. He's formed light and dark, but day four, he's gonna form, uh, excuse me, he's gonna fill that form with sun, moon, and stars. So if you look down at verse 14, it says, Then God said, Let there be lights. He's already created light, now he's gonna create lights. In the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night, they will serve as signs for seasons and for days and years, and they will be lights in the expanse of the sky to provide light on the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule over the day, what do we call that? Sun. And the lesser light to rule over the night, what do we call that? Moon. As well as the stars. And God placed them in the expanse of the sky to provide light on the earth, to rule the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good, and evening and, and morning came, the fourth day. That's how all six days of creation work. Day two, he creates the sea and the sky. That's the form. Day five, he creates the fish to fill the sea, and the birds to fill the sky. That's filling. Day three, he creates land and he creates plants. Day six, He's formed it, now he's gonna fill it. He's gonna fill it with land animals and with humans, which we're gonna look at that next Sunday in more detail, uh, the creation of, of humans. So he forms and he fills. You have this dark, empty, chaotic wasteland, but there's hope, God's pre- the presence of God's spirit, the presence of God's word. And when God's spirit and God's word go to work, what do they do? They form what was formless, turning back, tohu. And they fill what was empty, turning back, bohu. If you've ever been to the symphony, you know at the beginning before it starts, there's, there's chaotic noise. Everybody's kind of doing their own thing and there's just, just this rising noise until the maestro picks up his baton and he does, tink tink tink. And everybody stops and pays attention to the maestro, and he tunes them up to one note. Days one through six, where God forms what is formless and fills what is empty. Listen, folks, it is a symphony of creation, where God, through the presence of His Spirit and His Word, is bringing light into darkness, is bringing order out of chaos, is bringing form into what is formless, is bringing fullness into what is empty, reversing the formlessness and emptiness of verse 2. Like a parent who adopts a child and goes and prepares a special room for that child and builds a toy box and then fills the toy box with toys and invites the child to come in and enjoy what's been prepared, there's no accident there. There's no random chance there. It's the work of a loving parent. What we have in Genesis chapter 1 is the work of a loving God who forms this world and fills it with good things and says to his people, come in and enjoy it. Welcome home. I've prepared a place for you. That's creation. So how does God respond to it? Well, here's how I want to end. I just want to show you what God thinks of his own work. Okay, notice First, God's evaluation of his creation. At the end of each of the six days, there's a repetition of this phrase God saw that it was good. That is strengthened in verse 31. The end of the sixth day, he saw all that he had made. And verse 31 says, God saw that it was very good indeed. Now, that's another Hebrew wordplay. This is what he says in Hebrew Tov Maod. Not toad, ma'od. Tov ma'od. Very good indeed. Men, when you're, uh, you go to lunch, your wife prepares lunch for you today, that's how you can respond. You can say, tov ma'od. <laughs> Stick your pinky out and say, Very good indeed. That's what God says about his own creation. That's his evaluation of his creation. He says, I did good. Very good indeed. I've done well. But not only that, you you also have God's satisfaction with his creation. That's what the seventh day is about, which I do want to read these verses to you. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. So the heavens and the earth and everything in them were completed. And on the seventh day, God had completed his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day. That means he stopped from all the work that he had done. And God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy, for on it he rested from his work of creation. The word for rested is the word we get the word Sabbath from. In Hebrew, it's Shabbat. Can you all say that together? Shabbat. Here's how I remembered it as a student. Shabbat means stop. Okay? Shabbat means stop. This is not because God was tired. It's not like God was worn out, you know, after six days of creation and kind of needed to catch his breath. He stopped. He stopped not because he needed to rest. Listen to what Alan Ross says. Alan Ross says, this is not a word that refers to remedying exhaustion after a tiring week of work. Rather, it describes the enjoyment of accomplishment, the celebration of completion. God looks at his creation. He says, it's good. It's everything I want it to be. And he stops in order to party. Amen? to throw a celebration, to rest. Folks, that's what the Lord's Day is all about. It's not because you just need a day of rest. We all need a day of rest, but it's to stop to celebrate the work of God. That's what the original Shabbat was all about. God himself looking at what he had made and stopping to celebrate because he's satisfied with it. There's one more thing though. In the ancient Hebrew mind, the Shabbat, God's stopping on the seventh day, Was essentially equivalent with God's rulership over creation. In fact, the verse, the psalm I read you a few moments ago, Psalm 29, verse 10, says, The Lord sits enthroned above the waters. The word sit is related to the word Shabbat, it means to rest. And for the Israelites, the idea that God was resting was not the sense that God was taking a nap, but that God sat on the throne and he stopped working and began ruling and because he rules we can rest god looks at his creation he says it's good he celebrates it and he rules over it and then he invites us to join him in that celebration and in that resting and because he rules we can rest it's interesting, there's one unusual thing about day seven that's different than the six other days. After every one of the other six days, there's a phrase, then evening, there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Then there was evening, and there was morning the second day, so on and so forth. For six days, it says this. But it doesn't say it on the seventh day. It doesn't say there was evening and morning. It just doesn't. It just says God blessed it. And, and there you see God stopping. And I've wondered, why, why is that? Why do you have evening and morning for six days, but you don't have it on the seventh day? Well, I found an answer. Abraham Kuravilla, who uh, wrote a commentary on Genesis, he's coming for our home front conference to speak. He says this, this about that unusual thing on day seven. He says, this means that day seven is never concluded. The theology of the Sabbath is thereby established. God's resting and his reigning never ends. There's no conclusion to him resting and reigning over creation. Day seven, listen to this, is an ongoing saga that is yet to be consummated. There's a sense in which day seven goes on forever and ever. You know, when you read the New Testament, you know how eternity is described? As a Sabbath rest. And so there's a sense in which God never stops resting and reigning over his creation. There's another sense in which God invites us to participate in it with him. Eternity with Jesus is going to look like eternal rest and eternal reign. We will reign with Christ as he reigns over all things, and we will rest in the work of Christ. By the way, isn't this how we think of salvation itself? It's not us working. It's him working and us resting. It's not us accomplishing, it's him accomplishing and us receiving. See, God is not just the God of creation, he's also the God of salvation. And what he's actually inviting us to do as we look and step back and look at Genesis 1 is to say, our God works, therefore I can rest in his work. Amen? So this morning, I hope that you'll do that. I hope that as you think about God's creative work that you will marvel. You'll just stand in awe of him. I wrote the sermon when I was in Alaska. That's a great place to write a sermon on creation. Just awe and wonder. Look at what he's made. Not only do I hope that you will marvel, I hope that you will bow. Genesis 1 is not about counteracting evolution. It's about counteracting idolatry. It's about realizing who the true God of the universe is and bowing in submission to him. I hope that you will not only marvel and not only bow, I hope that you will enjoy the world he has made. He's called it good. So enjoy it. He celebrates it, so celebrate it. Go ride a bike. Go have a picnic. Go listen to some music. Go take a nap. Amen? Can I get a witness? (laughs) Go watch a football game. Enjoy this good world he has made. Marvel, bow, enjoy, rest. Rest in the work of God. Celebrate the Spirit of God and the Word made flesh who dwelt among us and we beheld His glory. Let's bow together. Lord, we thank You for Your work of creation. Help us to respond to it rightly. We pray this in the power of the Spirit, in the name of the Son who is the Word, amen.